Thank you very much for coming. I must say I'm enormously impressed with the uh, resilience and enthusiasm that you've all displayed. If I were to suggest to any of my undergraduates that we meet for a lecture at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, there would be, I think, 45 fewer people in this room than there are this morning. So thank you very much for uh, being here, and my thanks to the Alumni Association for having invited me to speak. Uh, my name is Nigel Bowles. I uh, was for many years a tutorial fellow in politics at St. Anne's College and for the last six years have been director of the Rothermere American Institute in Oxford. The RAI is America's home at Oxford, which um, in the words five minutes ago of my friend Jim Dunlop, who was here this morning, uh, is a buttress to British understanding of the United States, and one of our major purposes is to ensure that the peoples of Europe and of this country in particular understand how America has come to be what it is, what it's doing in the world, and what the challenges are before it. Most of my colleagues are historians. I, too, am an historian. I'm a student of the United States presidency. I've worked on that subject for now the best part of 40 years, spending most of the time when I'm not teaching or running the Institute in presidential and other archives in the United States. And I have spent an enormous amount of time, I must say, over the last 20 years on the papers, tapes, thoughts of Richard Nixon and those around him, working on the extraordinary collection of White House papers available in the Nixon Library, which was for years in Virginia, then moved to Maryland, and is now finally in California. So, if we were this morning to set out, and I haven't done this, I should hasten to add, if we were to set out to write a brief Wikipedia entry on, which, on Richard Nixon, and we were to put all of our knowledge of Nixon together this morning, I imagine that there's not a single point that I'm about to say that would not be known by at least some of you, and in most cases, probably by all of you. But let me just run through what that Wikipedia entry might look like. I hasten to add, it's not the Wikipedia entry, it's the one I would write. If I were doing a summary, I think I'd say this, on a simple factual basis, so that we know where we're starting from. Richard Milhouse Nixon, born in California in 1913, from a Quaker family, which is important, raised under his mother's firm and strict Quaker beliefs and principles. Background, wholly unprivileged. Scarred, I think, psychologically quite deeply by his father's business failure, as incidentally was Lyndon Johnson, Nixon's predecessor, and by the death of his younger brother. His college background, and this is a fact pregnant with significance, is not elite, but small college, Whittier in California. Later went to Duke Law School. First job was as a government administrator in, rather improbably, the Office of Price Administration in 1942, where he had the dubious privilege of setting the prices for rubber tyres. The demand for which, of course, in early 1942 was almost limitless. 
joined the United States Navy later that year, moderately distinguished war record, but did not serve in combat zones, resigned his commission in January 1946 as a lieutenant commander. Elected to serve as congressman for the 12th District of California in November 1946. Re-elected in 1948. So he served four years in the House. When he was elected to the United States Senate as United States Senator for California in 1950, at the age of just 37, then at the age of 39, selected by Dwight Eisenhower as his running mate for the presidential election of 1952. Served under Eisenhower for both of that president, that exceptional president's terms. He gained quite exceptional foreign policy experience during those eight years. He was the, United States, the, the cabinet of the president of the United States matters little, usually. It's not a decision-making body, but it, was a, it did afford Nixon exposure to the full run of national policy, and he ensured that in his personal travels and meetings, he acquired deep foreign policy experience as vice president. In other words... The vice president, which is an office which means very little, although it might mean everything, was something. It was an institution that Richard Nixon himself deliberately shaped to his own purposes, perfectly reasonably. He was Republican nominee for the presidency in 1960 against John Kennedy, and as we all certainly know in writing this brief Wikipedia entry, lost the election narrowly. He was Republican candidate for the California governorship in 1962, which he lost. And having lost it, he declared bitterly that he would leave public life. He then worked in New York as a corporate lawyer, successfully, but carefully prepared for the possibility of a presidential run in 1968, never in fact staying out of the public eye, even as he apparently stayed out of public life. He was chosen as the Republican nominee in 1968 against, I should say, an array of powerful competitors, people of nearly first rank, such as George Romney, father of Mitt, who was a formidable man, but competitors of absolutely the first rank, such as Nelson Rockefeller. He defeated Hubert Humphrey rather narrowly in a three-way race in 1968 against Humphrey and George Wallace, and took office as the 37th president in succession to Lyndon Johnson on the 20th of January, 1969. Re-elected overwhelmingly against Senator George McGovern, who, not coincidentally, was the candidate whom, had Richard Nixon been given the choice, would have been the candidate against whom he would have wished to run. Having first expanded the Vietnam War during his presidency, he ended it, having privately recognised, as he did from his before he came into office, privately recognised that the war was lost. He negotiated SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, an exceptional achievement, but one that built on the, pre the achievements of his predecessors, Kennedy and Johnson, and the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, again, a stabilising, exceptional, progressive achievement negotiating both with the USSR. He opened political relations with a then unreformed communist China 
1971. And as we all know, and I suppose it's the reason most of you are here this morning, he became the first and so far the only person to resign the office of President of the United States, leaving office on the August the 9th, 1974, having admired himself in criminal enterprises that he had himself encouraged, though usually not led, and which he had hidden. That's the end of our Wikipedia entry. So that's the platform for our discussion, just simple facts. Well, as I indicated when I began, I've lived with this man and his handwritten notes, his type papers, his instructions, notes of his meetings with his staff and cabinet members, notes of what other people thought of him, correspondence with members of Congress, with secretaries of his cabinet and with his staff for more than 20 years. And in that 20 years, I have not grown to love him. I have worked mostly on... Richard Nixon's economic policy. This isn't on which I've given any number of lectures over the years. This is, in fact, the first lecture I've ever given on Nixon as a person and as a president in terms of his reputation. But I've not grown to love him. I don't think him very lovable any more than I think his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, was especially lovable. But I do think him much more complex and more interesting than do many scholars and, if I may say so, most journalists. I am not here to prosecute him. So I quite understand that some colleagues might have come expecting some blood. They're not going to find it here this morning. Nor am I going to setting out to defend him. I'm trying to begin to explain him. I suppose, in essence, if we were to ask the median person on the street in Los Angeles or in New York, how does Richard Nixon's reputation stand with you today, 40 years on, 40 years after his resignation, I suppose we'd have answers which included references to his being a criminal, to his being a failure, to his having exceptionally low public support in 1973 and 74, and probably also to his being a conservative. Certainly liberals would tend to think that he was a conservative. Well, my talk is not about Watergate, or at least not primarily about Watergate, but I do have something to say about Watergate a little later. So my talk is not an evisceration of Nixon's reputation. I think another evisceration of Nixon's reputation is really the last thing we need. Rather, I want to introduce you to a Nixon of complexity, of subtlety, of internal conflict, which I think lived with him from childhood, and of some puzzlement, to me at least. He is a puzzling president, a puzzling politician, and a puzzling human being. And I want to point to to Nixon's administration as an inflection point in American history in the 20th century. It seems to me that he contributed and contributed mightily to new management of the relationship between the great powers of the United States, USSR, and China, to understanding the risks to unbridled strategic nuclear competition and then in building the coalition to address the threats that such unbridled competition posed, in having the imagination, and imagination it was, to make a strategic opening to China, not least in the way that he did it, 
and to confronting, as I've written quite a lot about, a crisis which turned out to be an insuperable crisis of the old economic order established by Bretton Woods in 1944. I'm not going to say very much about that, and the reason I'm not going to say very much about it is because although, as a geeky academic, I think it both important and absorbing, I recognise that management of foreign exchange and uh, foreign exchange rates, foreign exchange policy, and the position of the dollar in the international monetary order is not to everybody's tastes at 10.15 on a Sunday morning. I want to say something at this point about my debts, because I have debts, uh, as all academics do from those who've helped me. Uh, I have always benefited, in addition to working in archives, from conversations with those who have worked with presidents. And in Nixon's case, I've benefited hugely from conversations with Frank Gannon, with David Young, with John Price, and Alex Butterfield. David, John and Alex are all close friends, and indeed also with John Ehrlichman, uh, the late John Ehrlichman, and I thank them all warmly. They bear no responsibility for what I'm saying here this morning, but I am indebted to them. Now, I want to organise my talk around six headlines, six subsections, and I'm going to say a little bit under each, and I thought that that might provide a shape and form of organisation which would facilitate discussion when I stop talking in about half an hour or so. I want to say something about his inheritance in terms of policy and the context in which he assumed office. One. Two, I want to say something about his temperament and his character. Third, about his sense of purpose. Not all presidents have a sense of purpose. Nixon, I think, did. Fourthly, about his field for power. Fifthly, about his self-confidence. And finally, a word about his legacy. Now, I'm going to be quite brief in this, all these matters, because each of these subheadings could generate a lifetime's work. And each of the elements within those subheadings could certainly generate a book indeed a veritable shelf of books. So I'm going to use them as starting points for discussion, and I imagine that there will be much agreement, much disagreement in the question and answer session, and I hope for a lively discussion there. So, inheritance and context. I think there are three major elements to the inheritance which are relevant to our understanding of Richard Nixon. The first is Vietnam. Richard Nixon did not begin the Vietnam War John Kennedy initiated the Vietnam War. Whether John Kennedy would have done as Lyndon Johnson did, which was to expand it enormously to a commitment of half a million ground troops and to make it the most expensive war that the United States fought in the post-war period, I have no idea, but Johnson did expand it. And Richard Nixon inherited that expanded war. And he recognised, and he really did recognise, though of course he didn't say so publicly, he recognised that the United States could neither win nor end that war. That's an exceedingly painful position to be in. And he knew that, in fact, difficult as it was to end it, it had to be ended on terms which made it look at least an honourable exit. The second element of the inheritance was that of civil rights. 
Now, most of my undergraduates would probably tell you, at least before they started their course in American politics, that Richard Nixon must have been a conservative on civil rights because he was a Republican. It's not how American politics and history work in the post-war period. The Republican Party is, after all, the party of Union, the party of Lincoln, and the Republican Party was crucial to all of the 20th century's advances in civil rights, and Richard Nixon was fully part of that. He was actually a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Richard Nixon was not an opponent of civil rights. And that means that he was left with the problem of how to deal with the implementation of Lyndon Johnson's extraordinary revolution in federal law practice and disposition towards civil rights. Lyndon Johnson changed American history in respect to the rights of African Americans. Richard Nixon had to deal with the aftermath, with racial discord, with the frustration of African Americans of rights and opportunities long denied, expressed perhaps most vividly in busing, on which, incidentally, there are multiple shelffuls of books on Nixon's policy, which is the problem of making equality work in school education, to which there was no simple, straightforward answer, whether for conservatives or liberals or moderates. Under the circumstances, Nixon's policy was, in practice, not quite what he said. In practice, it was moderately progressive. The third element of the inheritance is inflation. Now, though I'm not going to say very much about economics, I can't leave this untouched. Inflation was a non-problem in the United States between 1952 and 1964, which is to say for the whole of Dwight Eisenhower's presidency, for the, whole of Linda, for the whole of John Kennedy's, and for the first two years of Lyndon Johnson's. What broke that equilibrium was Vietnam. Vietnam in 1967 accounted for the entire federal deficit, which at 1967 prices was $27 billion which in 1967 was a lot of money. I mean, to put this in simple figures, Kennedy bequeathed an inflation rate to Lyndon Johnson in November 63 of 1% per annum. Johnson bequeathed one to Richard Nixon in January 69 of 5%. That's a significant problem in the context of the 1960s and deeply worrying and destabilising. All those things, and politically significant, too. Second category, temperament and character. Let me get the worst bits out of the way first. It is easy to find examples on tape of Richard Nixon's private language betraying anti-Semitic, homophobic, racial prejudice, especially towards African Americans. I do not propose this morning to give examples. The language is repellent. I have to say, however, that it was much commoner in 1970 than it has since become. At the same time, and I have to say this, I have no examples on tape, none. I have never encountered a single one of Lyndon Johnson as president ever expressing such sentiments towards African Americans. I simply have no examples. And by the time he became president, I think he simply retained no such prejudices against African Americans. And he had never had anti-Semitic prejudices. Nixon did. I see little evidence more generally, I think, of Richard Nixon having the quality of great compassion. There are points when he 
gives way to compassion, but usually when he is himself in emotional need, as he was, for example, in the two years after he resigned the presidency. What's curious about him, in terms of his temperament and character, is his exceptional sense of order. This is a man who wore black tailored shoes when walking on the beach and a three-piece blue suit. He always wore a three-piece blue suit. He himself referred to his obsession with tidiness and neatness in my own methodical way, he would say. His days were regular, most of them spent alone, starting at 7.30 in the Oval Office, remaining there or in the old executive office building where he had a special hideaway office constructed for him, on his own, lunching alone, dining alone, never lunching with his wife, rarely dining with his wife. His remarkable wife spent Richard Nixon's presidency almost entirely alone herself, and it was by his choice. He was remarkably self-contained. At his best, I think he was clever without being overtly analytical, although he was certainly capable of thinking analytically. But in discussions with his senior staff, he typically explored politics in three dimensions. The interactions of personalities, it's very common among politicians. Politicians tend to think about individuals, leaders first. Secondly, Nixon thought about the explanatory force of cultures, which interested him enormously, not least with regard to China and Russia and Western Europe. And he thought thirdly of the comparative military and economic capacities of states and of the changes in those conditions. In all these respects, he's moderately impressive, especially in the second and the third. And remember, I'm thinking of him in his private conversations rather than his public statements, although you get flavours of it from his press conferences and his uh, public declarations and speeches. He did not, I think, think institutionally in any way that we could describe as sophisticated. Although Richard Nixon had been in the House of Representatives and in the United States Senate, he actually knew remarkably little about either of them. And it didn't, neither of those institutions greatly absorbed him. The contrast with Lyndon Johnson is enormous and very clear. Lyndon Johnson knew everything about the United States House and the United States Senate that was relevant to doing his, the jobs he had when Congressman senator, majority leader, and then president of the United States. Everything. That could not be said of Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was really a grand strategist. He thought in broad categories. And within those constraints, he was an organised thinker and a shrewd negotiator. As some of you probably know, he was, when in the United States Navy, a remarkably successful poker player. His mother would deeply have disapproved both of his being in the United States Navy and of his playing poker whilst in it. I can't leave this category without referring to his relentlessness. With a possible exception of Mayor Daley, Mayor of Chicago, I can think of no politician in the post-war American period whose relentlessness exceeds that of Richard Nixon. If Richard Nixon said... I'm a fighter. I didn't want to quit, almost spitting that last word out. He said it a thousand times. 
And that polarity between quitters and non-quitters, between fighters and non-fighters, is one that he, to which he has constant resource, especially but not exclusively in private exchanges. It's a recurrent Nixon polarity. There's a competitive intensity to his politics, which has parallels in post-war American politics. There are others who, do, who match him. But what is striking about Nixon is his willingness to take risks with what the law and constitution permits. That was true during the vice presidential campaign under Eisenhower in 1952, when Nixon was nearly forced off the ticket for, because of allegations of financial corruption. It was true in 1968, when he caused secret negotiations to be opened with the South Vietnamese, attempting to persuade the South Vietnamese that they should not accede to, that they should resist Lyndon Johnson's attempts to draw them into negotiations before the November 68 election because they would get a better deal from him when he became president. That is a criminal offence in the United States. And we know what Nixon was doing, we know who he was speaking with, and we know what was said because the CIA tracked him throughout. It was not his finest moment. A further dimension of Nixon's character is that he was constantly searching for what he called the big play. He loved sporting metaphors. The big play, putting opponents off balance. He was a master of the art of surprise. The supreme political task for Nixon was, and this is his view not my view of him, his view was that the supreme political task was finding the right enemies. Now, of course, that's always true in politics. But Nixon was more overt about it than I think most. And for him, Alger Hiss had been ideal in this respect, the State Department employee, who was almost certainly a Soviet agent. Nixon's loathing of social and intellectual elites is deep, but it was fused with sensing a political opportunity. So much evidence, real evidence, imagined evidence, confected evidence, fueled his abiding resentments. No major politician in the post-war era was, era was more devoted to using those resentments to help him to fuel his drive to find enemies who were useful to him. McGovern was a wonderful opponent in 1972 for Richard Nixon. Not just the ideal opponent, but the preferred opponent. No other president in the post-war period had anything that came close to Richard Nixon's assembling and maintenance of the enemies list in White House papers. Unsurprisingly, I find him a pessimist about human character. And I think that pessimism about human character partly explains his indifference to legal constraints, which I've touched upon before and will probably will discuss in questions. I think he regarded himself as constrained by law to the extent that was expedient and no more. And at this point, I wondered if I might just play a tape, try to play a tape. I, think, I hope it will work. If it doesn't, I'll just tell you what the content was. I will play the tape, and I'll have a script running, of the 
conversation between Richard Nixon and Bob Holden on June 23rd, so-called smoking gun tape. And what is going on in this tape is that Haldeman is reporting to Nixon on what he's discovered about the Watergate break-in, which Richard Nixon did not know about beforehand, about its financing, about some of the people who were directly involved in it, and what the options were. The essence of the story is that the money raised for the re-election campaign through CREEP, the campaign to re-elect the president, most unfortunate acronym, (laughs) was redirected to criminal enterprises and to the Watergate burglars in particular. What is going on here is that Bob Haldeman is advising the president of the United States to use the CIA to veto the FBI's investigations of the Watergate break-in. The Watergate break-in, rather correction, the FBI at this point appears appears to Haldeman to have concluded, or at least as an interim, drawn the interim conclusion, that what's going on in the Watergate break-in is probably a CIA operation, and if not, a White House operation. Haldeman's preferred solution to the problem, therefore, is to use the CIA's senior directorate to instruct the director of the FBI to halt the investigation into the break-in on the grounds that it was a matter of national security. That reason was false. Now, there will be some names here which many of you will know and some of you might not, so let me just tell you who they are. There's a reference to Walters, CIA, Pat Gray who's director of the FBI, Mark Felt, deputy FBI director. Mark Felt is probably a familiar name to some of you. Mark Felt was the person who, 30 years later, emerged as Deep Throat, the source of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's information to the Washington Post. Bernard Barker, Watergate burglar. Charles Colson, a White House staff aide. Richard Helms, CIA. Ken Dahlberg, who was an entirely innocent, completely innocent donor to Richard Nixon's re-election campaign from Minnesota, and Gordon Liddy, who was head of the White House Plumbers Unit, which was set up, as the name implies, to stop leaks. So here's the conversation. It's June 23, 1972, a matter of a week after the Watergate break-in.
so what should we infer from that? Um, well, probably that if you're going to, if as President of the United States, you think it appropriate to have conversations in the Oval Office about using government agencies as co-conspirators in a criminal enterprise, you probably, it's probably best not to put it on tape. <laughs> I find it deeply sad, actually, that uh, public space such as the Oval Office could ever be used for such purposes, but there we are. Lastly, under temperament and character, I would say that Richard Nixon's demonstration of humour is rather rare, um, partly because he found it almost impossible to relax. There is, however, a series of wonderful interviews by my friend Frank Gannon at the Nixon Foundation with Nixon some years after he stepped down. It's available on the Nixon Foundation's website in one of which Nixon discusses this tape of June 23rd because it was the release of this tape that actually precipitated Nixon's resignation because this tape made it impossible to sustain the claim that Nixon was himself not a, not a party to the cover-up of a criminal enterprise which he had, by implication, sanctioned. And in one of those interviews, he, in discussing the tape of the 23rd, he said that tape was the final nail in the coffin. Although, he said, and he smiled, it was actually rather sweet, he said, you don't need another nail if you're already in the coffin, which we were. And so he and his staff were. Very good. What a sense of purpose. Now, I need to make a point here about context. The Republican Party in 68 was not a conservative party. It was a coalition of conservatives, moderates, and liberals. It was, and as to Nixon, he was himself not a conservative either. He was ideologically flexible and mobile. I put it this way. He's not a simple conservative. He's not simply a conservative. He's not really a conservative at all. In practice, Richard Nixon expanded much of Lyndon Johnson's great society in practice, even as he criticised it in public. There's an interesting parallel of a kind with Dwight Eisenhower's rather progressive response as a moderately conservative Republican to the liberal inheritance from Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. So Nixon expanded the great society in practice, even as he criticised it in public, on the environment, on welfare reform, on busing, on arms control, all were consistent with a progressive politician standing upon a progressive platform. But it was impossible in 1968 to determine what Richard Nixon stood for because the platform had almost no content, save for platitudinous references to the need for leadership. His stumped speeches, great rallying cry in 68 was, what do the people want? What they have not got. Well, that takes you so far in politics, but only so far. I think with regard to a sense of purpose in domestic politics, he is broadly progressive and accepting of his inheritance, but he's not preoccupied with the substance of domestic politics, except in so far as he shows himself supremely able to shape domestic politics to suit his electoral purpose. He frequently asked his senior staff, in thinking about this problem, what you can insert the problem, welfare, 
busing, the environment, price and wage controls, opening to China, whatever the element is, his question was, do we want to solve this problem or to keep it? In other words, to keep it in order to embarrass one's opponents and enemies. And he was remarkably skilled as a tactician in doing so. But his focus upon election-winning strategies was absolute. Price and wage controls, on which I've spent far too much of my time working in my life under Nixon, are a wonderful example of this. Just think of it. Governments actually setting prices and wages in a free economy. A Republican setting prices and wages in a free economy. If one thing unites the Republican Party at all in 1968, it is a commitment to free markets. Nixon led a, as it turned out, utterly disastrous attempt to set prices and wages by edict. His purpose was not, of course, to set prices and wages. His purpose was to minimise unemployment and inflation on election day in 1972. And he succeeded. And we know that was his purpose because that's what he repeatedly said in private to his staff and what he recorded on his yellow pads and his long evenings of reflection on his own when more normal people might have been having dinner with their spouse. His sense of purpose, it seems to me, is realised, therefore, in his election focus, but overwhelmingly in his large-scale geopolitical questions and strategy. Where does the United States stand? How might the United States' national interest be defined, understood, and projected in relations with the two other major nuclear powers, the Soviet Union and China? Thinking about that triangle was what he probably did best, and it is what he spent such a large proportion of his time doing. Now, briefly, because I want to leave time for questions, let me say something about feel for power. Richard Nixon was absolutely convinced that he understood power and politics. You might think that claim is somewhat in tension with the tape of June 23rd, but the presidency is already beginning to unravel by that stage, even before the end of the first term. But he was nevertheless privately convinced that he understood it, and he told others that he did so. He was equally convinced that nobody else in the United States who was a political opponent, or a plausible political opponent of his, had a comparably deep understanding. Except possibly, he said, for Nelson Rockefeller and the person he most admired. Richard Nixon didn't do admiration for other people. Richard Nixon admired very few other people in public life, but John Connolly was certainly one of them, the governor of Texas whom Nixon made his secretary of the Treasury. Connolly was indeed impressive. I speak from personal observation and having known him a little. But Nixon's admiration for him almost faded into, as some of his staff thought, a rather perverse love. But it was extraordinarily rare. What mattered, Richard Nixon said, in thinking about power, in having a feel for power, in a separated, not a presidential system, was, and I quote him, how it appears to those whom you wish to influence. In other words, appearance always trumps substance. 
Now, I'm not sure that Richard Nixon really thought that, but it's what he said he thought. And he certainly often behaved as if that were true. What of his confidence, penultimately? I've referred already to his resilience. I've referred to his extraordinary imagination in opening to China. We need to think also about his conduct of relations with other centres of power, with the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and Foreign Minister Gromyko, with the Chinese leadership. This is extraordinarily risky territory where the United States' power and prestige and security are genuinely at stake, not just in the short term, but for decades afterwards. Nixon seems to me never to have doubted himself in those negotiations, even where he lacked technical understanding of the question, as politicians necessarily do, because they are, for the most part, uh, not technical experts, even where he's most dramatically lacked technical understanding, such as in economics, about which he had little or no understanding and even less interest, even there, his confidence in dealing with others was immense. His understanding that using the power and prestige of the office he held gave him an immense advantage with all of his interlocutors. That, I think, is very potent insight. Not all presidents make of it what they might. I think Richard Nixon did. And Salt was, in my view, and the ABM Treaty was, in my view, a remarkably good deal. It was an extraordinarily far-sighted piece of negotiation. Self-doubt is, by the same token, rare. Don't find much self-doubt. You do find self-pity. Remember that observation that he made after the, his defeat in the 62 California gubernatorial election? This is my last press conference, gentlemen. You won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. That's self-pity. So he gives way to self-pity, as Lyndon Johnson did and as John Kennedy never did, and as I think Dwight Eisenhower was incapable of doing. Dwight Eisenhower had far too much integrity and spine to give way to it. But Dick Nixon did, Richard Nixon did occasionally give way to, to self-doubt, uh, to, to, um, to pity. And I think there was a good deal of pity, self-pity, in the two or three years after his resignation. And that is scarcely surprising. It would have been a superhuman, almost inhuman accomplishment for that not to have been the case. Well, I began by inheritance. What did he inherit? What did he leave? Well, I think I noted that John Kennedy bequeathed an inflation rate to Lyndon Johnson of 1% and that Johnson bequeathed an inflation rate to Richard Nixon of 5%. And in part, I think quite significant part, that 5% was Johnson's doing and most of it's accounted attributable to Vietnam. What inflation rate did Richard Nixon bequeath to Gerald Ford after the disastrous price and wage control experiment had failed? He bequeathed to him a rate of 11%. Whilst inflation and unemployment did indeed, were indeed both, both at their lowest points during his entire presidency in the month which he intended, at which he intended they would be lowest, we all know the answer, 
November 1972. That is not coincidental. Both inflation and unemployment tracked upwards monotonically for every succeeding month until August 1974. It was a pretty sour legacy to leave, uh, to leave Gerald Ford. And what ensued, of course, and I do, I think, blame Johnson and Nixon in part for this, was a decade of stagflation, a combination of cripplingly high inflation and high unemployment, with enormous human welfare losses, quite disastrous destabilising. I would also note that real median individual workers' incomes in the United States, and this sounds unbelievable, but it is true, real median individual workers' incomes in the United States are today no higher than they were in 1973. I do not blame Richard Nixon for that, but it does indeed turn us to our point, turn us to my proposition that Nixon's presidency is an inflection point in American history. Politically, politically, it seems to me that Richard Nixon's presidency did huge damage to the Republicans in the short run, but prepared the way for Ronald Reagan's conservative takeover of the Republican Party in 1980. The Republicans suffered huge losses in the 1974 midterm elections, just weeks really after, after Nixon left office in August 74, mostly because of Watergate, but also because of Gerald Ford's, that utterly decent man, Gerald Ford's wise but electorally damaging pardon of Richard Nixon. The Republicans had been a minority party in the House of Representatives since 1955. But they lost a further four Senate seats and 48 House seats in those, in those November 74 elections. And that changed context in turn meant that Gerald Ford's prospects for a successful presidency were converted by those congressional results from being merely difficult to nearly impossible. Gerald Ford's political achievement in coming so close to winning the American presidential election just two years later was, in my view, quite formidable. And I think it's far too little appreciated by Americans in general and historians of the presidency in particular. I leave with the thought that I think a third legacy is one with which we live to this day. And it's that of distrust in government within America. That was already underway before Richard Nixon became president, well underway by 1966 because of urban revolt, because of unease at growing disorder in America's cities, and because of Vietnam, whose scars are still with the body of American politics. But it has never recovered. As I speak today, only 24% of Americans say that they trust their government. And to take another measure, estimation of the United States Congress's performance as good is just 6%. The proportion estimating Congress's performance as excellent is just 1%. That is a slightly lower proportion of American voters than approve of Fidel Castro. <laughs> now, Richard Nixon is not solely responsible for that legacy. The legacy is the 
complex product of individuals, structures, institutions, external factors, a changed world, the end to bipolarity, an ideological revolution in the management of economic policy, and, of course, of a crushing Great Recession between 2007 and 2012, the effects of which live with us today. But I hope that in sketching these thoughts out, I've at least shown that Richard Nixon's presidency was enormously consequential, not just negatively, positively too, in setting a framework for the conduct of strategic negotiations with major partners and adversaries, in thinking more intelligently than America had previously done about welfare and about environmental regulation, and in recognising that whatever we think of his presidency and however we evaluate it, inheriting a, Vietnam, a, a war on the scale, intensity and divisiveness that Vietnam had imposed upon America and indeed upon Southeast Asia was a poisonous inheritance with which the most gifted president of our own choosing, whoever that she or he might be, would have struggled. It's always important to think about context. Historical context is critical. And I think Nixon could only would have been a much less considerable person than I believe him to have been had he not been acutely aware of that poisonous context. It is, I think, true that in certain respects his legacy to American politics was even more damaging than his inheritance had been to him. But if I were to offer a request this morning, it would be that... The time has come to move beyond caricatures of the 37th President of the United States. I think we need to do him and American history the honour of taking him and his times more seriously than we sometimes have, warts and all. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>